Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of Tea and Old Books. My name is Jenny, and every day through the Spanish lockdown, I'm going to be reading aloud an old book whilst I drink some tea. Today is day 18 of the Spanish lockdown, and we're reading The Circular Staircase by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. And today we're going to read chapters 33 and 34. And this is a very special episode because it is the final episode, assuming that I have counted the chapters correctly. Pretty sure this is the final episode and we only have two chapters left in which to find out the solution to the mystery. Now the tea that I'm drinking today is chamomile tea which I have added honey to. My throat is feeling a bit rough and I'm hoping this will help soothe it. Now, as today is the final episode, I've looked up a few extra bits of information through Wikipedia about this novel and about Mary Roberts Reinhardt. There's not very much information on this book, I think because it's quite old, but I haven't really delved into it that deeply, I must confess. So, The Circular Staircase, as I said before, is Mary Robert, Roberts Reinhardt's most popular, most successful book. And it's been adapted for the screen twice, which is pretty exciting news because now I have to hunt down those films. So the first time was that it was, um, it was adapted as a silent film in 1915. And then later, much later, in 1956, it was adapted in the television series Climax. Mm. And as well as that, it was also adapted by Reinhardt herself into a play. Now, she did this play in 1920, which is after she had already sold the rights to the film company back in 1915. So the play is not called The Circular Staircase, but is called The Bat. And Mary Roberts Reinhardt denied that it was the same story, though everybody seems to be in agreement that it's the same story. And I, I wonder now whether that's... Is that a clue? Are we about to have the ending of this book ruined by the title of that play? I don't think so, because I can't think of any bats that have happened that have been in the story so far. I guess we will find out. So it was, um, this play was a Broadway hit and it was a play of three acts. Hmm, interesting. As for Reinhardt herself, as I mentioned before, she's often called the American Agatha Christie, which I think is just because Agatha Christie was more successful than she was worldwide because Reinhardt's first not mystery novel was published 14 years before Christie's first novel. So clearly she's writing these types of stories way before Christie is, but Christie is much more successful and so has become known as like the dame of crime fiction. Um, Reinhardt is also, supposedly, according to Wikipedia, the source of the phrase, the butler did it. But as we know from The Circular Staircase, that is not a plot point in The Circular Staircase. The butler died a while ago and I guess, I mean, he could still be involved somehow, but I think he's not. I think his part is done, and I think he was innocent of all, even though I kept trying to blame him for things. So, 
that is all the information I have on, on Reinhardt and the circular staircase. So let's continue reading. But before we do, we have to discuss what happened last episode. And boy, was it an exciting episode because we finally got some answers. I think we finally found out who killed Arnold Armstrong. So if you haven't listened to any of the previous episodes, if for some reason you're clocking in right now at the very final episode, I have to say, stop, I'm about to tell you who shot Arnold Armstrong. You need to go back to the beginning and listen to this roller coaster of a story from, from day one. Day one. This is now episode 17. So back to the beginning with you. So last episode, we found out that Mrs. Watson shot Arnold Armstrong. I will just let that sink in for a moment. Who is Mrs. Watson, you may be wondering, because Mrs. Watson has not been on the scene for quite a while. So if you remember, she cut her hand and she's been in hospital with like a a blood infection because of that cut for, ooh, like, I don't know, like 12 episodes or something. She's been gone for a long time. But she popped back up because Rachel felt bad about the fact she was dying and she'd asked to see her. And so against her will, because Rachel hates dying people, she went to the hospital and she heard Mrs. Watson's final confession. And it turns out that Mrs. Watson went to Halsey's room, got the gun and shot Arnold Armstrong whilst standing on the circular staircase. I did not see that one coming. And the reason that she shot him, you know, some might say, you know, with good reason, um, was that Arnold Armstrong had been blackmailing her for years. So Arnold Armstrong has an illegitimate child, or maybe it's legitimate. So Arnold Armstrong took on a false name, married a woman, who's Mrs. Watson's sister, had a child. So maybe it's not illegitimate because they were married, even if it was under a false name had a child, and then he abandoned his family, and the sister died of sadness, apparently. Um, And Mrs. Watson has been raising the child, and she really loves the child. And she had gone originally to Arnold Armstrong, and she had asked him for money to help her raise the child, which is, you know, very reasonable. But somehow the tables turned... And Arnold Armstrong realised that she loved that child more than anything else, you know, because she's a decent human being. And so he switched the tables on her and started demanding that she give him money, even though, you know, she's an impoverished servant. Though I guess maybe she wouldn't be so impoverished if she wasn't giving away most of her wage to this blackmailer. And he's been threatening her with taking away the child and making sure she never sees him again. Maybe even killing the child. I mean, it got pretty grim there for a while. So Mrs. Watson, unable to take this blackmail any longer after suffering years of it, years and years, she's tried hiding the child. He keeps finding him again. She finally snaps, and she shoots him dead. And honestly, I mean, Arnold Armstrong does not sound like a good character in the story, so it's no loss to anyone. No one is mourning him. He's a bad egg. So that was like very exciting revelation there um, and it came two chapters earlier than I thought it was going to because I you know I'd pegged us getting all of the answers in like the final two paragraphs of the final chapter that's how I thought Mary Reinhardt was going to play this story 
But no, two chapters away and she gives us the murderer. So what mysteries are left to be unveiled? So we still need to know what John Bailey and Halsey were doing. Why did they vanish? What was all that about? Why is Louise engaged to be married to the doctor, who she clearly doesn't love? What else? Oh, and of course, the mysterious room that Rachel also found in the last episode. She's worked out that there's a room between two fireplaces in the room above her, in the trunk room and whatever room is next to it. So, whew, wow, a lot of things happening. So let's continue reading. I'm going to have some tea first because I think whew, things are going to get exciting. And I will do my best to talk a bit slower because I can I'm excited to read the end of the story and I'm getting carried away. Okay, so let's, let's continue with chapter 33, At the Foot of the Stairs. As I drove rapidly up to the house from Casanova Station in the hack, I saw the Detective Burns loitering across the street from the Walker place. So Jameson was putting the screws on, lightly now, but ready to give them a twist or two, I felt certain, very soon. The house was quiet. Two steps of the circular staircase had been pried off without result, and beyond a second message from Gertrude, that Halsey insisted on coming home and that they would arrive that night, there was nothing new. Mr Jameson, having failed to locate the secret room, had gone to the village. I learned afterwards that he called at Dr. Walker's under pretense of an attack of acute indigestion, and before he left had inquired about the evening trains to the city. He said he had wasted a lot of time on the case, and a good bit of the mystery was in my imagination. The doctor was under the impression that the house was guarded day and night. Well, Give a place a reputation like that, and you don't need a guard at all. Thus, Jameson. And sure enough, late in the afternoon, the two private detectives, accompanied by Mr Jameson, walked down the main street of Casanova and took a city-bound train. That they got off at the next station and walked back to Sunnyside at dusk was not known at the time. Personally, I knew nothing of either move I had other things to absorb me at that time. Liddy brought me some tea while I rested after my trip, and on the tray was a small book from the Casanova Library. It was called The Unseen World and had a cheerful cover on which half a dozen sheeted figures linked hands around a headstone. At this point in my story, Halsey always says, Trust a woman to add two and two together and make six. To which I retort that if 2 and 2 plus x make 6, then to discover the unknown quantity is the simplest thing in the world. That a houseful of detectives missed it entirely was because they were busy trying to prove that 2 and 2 make 4. The depression, due to my visit to the hospital, left me at the prospect of seeing Halsey again that night. It was about 5 o'clock when Liddy left me for a nap before dinner having put me into a grey silk dressing gown and a pair of slippers. I listened to her retreating footsteps, and as soon as she was safely below stairs, I went up to the trunk room. The place had not been disturbed, 
and I proceeded at once to try to discover the entrance to the secret room. The openings on either side, as I have said, showed nothing but perhaps three feet of brick wall. There was no sign of an entrance, no levers, no hinges to give a hint, either the mantle or the roof, I decided, and after a half hour at the mantle, productive of absolutely no result, I decided to try the roof. I am not fond of a height. The few occasions on which I have climbed a stepladder have always left me dizzy and weak in the knees. The top of the Washington Monument is as impossible to me as the elevation of the presidential chair. And yet, I climbed out onto the Sunnyside roof without a second's hesitation. Like a dog on a scent, like my bare skin progenitor, with his spear and his wild boar, to me now there was the lust of the chase, the frenzy of pursuit, the dust of battle. I got quite a little of the latter on me as I climbed from the unfinished ballroom out through a window to the roof of the east wing of the building, which was only two storeys in height. Once out there, access to the top of the main building was rendered easy. At least it looked easy by a small vertical iron ladder fastened to the wall outside of the ballroom and perhaps 12 feet high. The 12 feet looked short from below, but they were difficult to climb. I gathered my silk gown around me and succeeded finally in making the top of the ladder. Once there, however, I was completely out of breath. I sat down, my feet on the top rung and put my hairpins in more securely while the wind bellowed my dressing gown out like a sail. I had torn a great strip of the silk loose, and now I ruthlessly finished the destruction of my gown by jerking it free and tying it around my head. From far below, the smallest sounds came up with peculiar distinctiveness. I could hear the paper boy whistling down the drive, and I heard something else. I heard the thud of a stone and a spit followed by a long and startled meow from Belua. I forgot my fear of a height and advanced boldly almost to the edge of the roof. It was half past six by that time and growing dusk. You boy, down there, I called. The paper boy turned and looked around. Then, seeing nobody, he raised his eyes. It was a moment before he located me, and when he did, he stood for one moment as if paralysed. Then he gave a horrible yell and, dropping his papers, bolted across the lawn to the road without stopping to look around. Once he fell and his impetus was so great that he turned an involuntary somersault. He was up and off again without any perceptible pause and he leaped the hedge, which I am sure under ordinary stress would have been a feat for a man. I am glad in this way to settle the grey lady story, which is still a choice morsel in Casanova. I believe the moral deduced by the village was that it is always unlucky to throw a stone at a black cat. With Johnny Sweeney a cloud of dust down the road and the dinner hour approaching, I hurried on with my investigations. Luckily, the roof was flat and I was able to go over every inch of it, but the result was disappointing. No trapdoor revealed itself, no glass window, nothing but a couple of pipes two inches across. And standing perhaps 18 inches high and three feet apart, 
with a cap to prevent rain from entering and raised to permit the passage of air. I picked up a pebble from the roof and dropped it down, listening with my ear at one of the pipes. I could hear it strike on something with a sharp metallic sound, but it was impossible for me to tell how far it had gone. I gave up finally and went down the ladder again, getting in through the ballroom window without being observed. I went back at once to the trunk room and, sitting down on a box, I gave my mind, as consistently as I could, to the problem before me. If the pipes in the roof were ventilators to the secret room and there was no trapdoor above, the entrance was probably in one of the two rooms between which it lay. Unless, indeed, the room had been built and the opening then closed with a brick and mortar wall. The mantle fascinated me. Made of wood and carved, the more I looked, the more I wondered that I had not noticed before the absurdity of such a mantle in such a place. It was covered with scrolls and panels, and finally, by the merest accident, I pushed one of the panels to the side. It moved easily, revealing a small brass knob. It is not necessary to detail the fluctuations of hope and despair and not a little fear of what lay beyond, with which I twisted and turned the knob. It moved, but nothing seemed to happen, and then I discovered the trouble. I pushed the knob vigorously to one side, and the whole mantle swung loose from the wall almost a foot, revealing a cavernous space beyond. I took a long breath, closed the door from the trunk room into the hall, thank heaven I did not lock it, and pulling the mantel door wide open, I stepped into the chimney room. I had time to get a hazy view of a small portable safe, a common wooden table and a chair. Then the mantel door swung to and clicked behind me. I stood quite still for a moment in the darkness, unable to comprehend what had happened. Then I turned and beat furiously at the door with my fists. It was closed and locked again, and my fingers in the darkness slid over a smooth wooden surface without a sign of a knob. I was furiously angry at myself, at the mantel door, at everything. I did not fear suffocation. Before the thought had come to me, I had already seen a gleam of light from the two ventilating pipes in the roof. They supplied air, but nothing else. The room itself was shrouded in blackness. I sat down in the stiff-backed chair and tried to remember how many days one could live without food and water. When that grew monotonous and rather painful, I got up and according to the time-honoured rule for people shut in unknown and ink-black prisons, I felt my way around. It was small enough, goodness knows. I felt nothing but a splintery surface of boards and endeavouring to get back to the chair, something struck me full in the face and fell with the noise of a thousand explosions to the ground. When I had gathered up my nerves again, I found it had been the bulb of a swinging electric light, and that, had it not been for the accident, I might have starved to death in an illuminated sepulchre. I must have dozed off. I am sure I did not faint. I was never more composed in my life. I remember planning, if I were not discovered, who would have my things? I knew Liddy would want my helitrope poplin, 
and she's a fright in lavender. Once or twice I heard mice in their partitions, and so I sat on the table with my feet on the chair. I imagined I could hear the search going on through the house, and once someone came into the trunk room, I could distinctly hear footsteps. In the chimney, in the chimney, I called with all my might, and was rewarded by a piercing shriek from Liddy and the slam of the trunk room door. I felt easier after that, although the room was oppressively hot and enervating. I had no doubt the search for me would now come in the right direction, and after a little I dropped to a doze. How long I slept, I do not know. It must have been several hours, for I had been tired from a busy day, and I wakened stiff from my awkward position. I could not remember where I was for a few minutes, and my head felt heavy and congested. Gradually, I roused to my surroundings and to the fact that in spite of the ventilators, the air was bad and growing worse. I was breathing long, gasping respirations, and my face was damp and clammy. I must have been there a long time. And the searchers were probably hunting outside the house, dredging the creek or beating the woodland. I knew that another hour or two would find me unconscious, and with my inability to cry out would would go my only chance of rescue. It was the combination of bad air and heat, probably for some inadequate ventilation, was coming through the pipes. I tried to retain my consciousness by walking the length of the room and back, over and over, but I had not the strength to keep it up, so I sat down on the table again, my back against the wall. The house was very still. Once my straining ears seemed to catch a footfall beneath me, possibly in my own room. I groped for the chair from the table and pounded with it frantically on the floor, but nothing happened. I realised bitterly that if the sound was heard at all, no doubt it was classed with the other rappings that had so alarmed us recently. It was impossible to judge the flight of time. I measured five minutes by counting my pulse, allowing 72 beats to the minute, but it took eternities, and toward the last I found it hard to count. My head was confused. And then I heard sounds from below me, in the house. There was a peculiar throbbing, vibrating noise that I felt rather than heard, much like the pulsing beat of fire engines in the city. For one awful moment, I thought the house was on fire, and every drop of blood in my body gathered around my heart. Then I knew. It was the engine of the automobile, and Halsey had come back. Hope sprang up afresh. Halsey's clear head and Gertrude's intuition might do what Liddy's hysteria and three detectives had failed in. After a time, I thought I had been right. There was certainly something going on down below. Doors were slamming, people were hurrying through the halls, and certain high notes of excited voices penetrated to me shrilly. I hoped they were coming closer, but after a time the sounds died away below, and I was left to the silence and heat, to the weight of the darkness, to the oppression of walls that seemed to close in on me and stifle me. The first warning I had was a stealthy fumbling at the lock of the mantel door. With my mouth open to scream, I stopped. Perhaps the situation had rendered me acute, perhaps it was instinctive. Whatever it was, I sat without moving, 
and someone outside, in absolute stillness, ran his fingers over the carving of the mantel and found the panel. Now the sounds below redoubled. From the clatter and jarring, I knew that several people were running up the stairs, and as the sounds approached, I could even hear what they said. Watch the end staircases, Jameson was shouting. Damnation, there's no light here. And then a second later, all together now, one, two, three. The door into the trunk room had been locked from the inside. At the second that it gave, opening against the wall with a crash, and evidently tumbling somebody into the room, the stealthy fingers beyond the mantel door gave the knob the proper impetus, and the door swung open and closed again. Only... And Liddy always screams and puts her fingers in her ears at this point. Only now I was not alone in the chimney room. There was someone else in the darkness. Someone who breathed hard and who was so close I could have touched him with my hand. I was in a paralysis of terror. Outside there were excited voices and incredulous oaths. The trunks were being jerked around in a frantic search. The windows were thrown open only to show a sheer drop of 40 feet, and the man in the room with me leaned against the mantel door and listened. His pursuers were plainly baffled. I heard him draw a long breath and turn to grope his way through the blackness. Then he touched my hand, cold, clammy, death-like. A hand in an empty room, he drew in his breath, the sharp sharp intaking of horror that Phil's lungs suddenly collapsed. Beyond jerking his hand away instantly, he made no movement. I think absolute terror had him by the throat. Then he stepped back without turning, retreating foot by foot from the dread in the corner, and I do not think he breathed. Then, with the relief of space between us, I screamed, ear-splittingly madly, and they heard me outside. In the chimney, I shouted, Behind the mantel, the mantel! With an oath, the figure hurled itself across the room at me, and I screamed again. In his blind fury, he had missed me. I heard him strike the wall. That one time I eluded him. I was across the room, and I had got the chair. He stood for a second listening. Then he made another rush, and I struck out with my weapon. I think it stunned him, for I had a second's respite, when I could hear him breathing and someone shouted outside, We can't get in. How does it open? But the man in the room had changed his tactics. I knew he was creeping on me inch by inch, and I could not tell from where. And then he caught me. He held his hand over my mouth, and I bit him. I was helpless, strangling, and someone was trying to break in the mantle from outside. It began to yield somewhere for a thin wedge of yellowish light was reflected on the opposite wall. When he saw that, my assailant dropped me with a curse. Then, the opposite wall swung open noiselessly, closed again without a sound, and I was alone. The intruder was gone. In the next room, I called wildly, the next room! But the sound of blows on the mantle drowned my voice. By the time I had made them understand, a couple of minutes had elapsed. The pursuit was taken up then, by all except Alex, who was determined to liberate me. When I stepped out into the trunk room, a free woman again, I could hear the chase far below. I must say, 
For all of Alex's anxiety to set me free, he paid little enough attention to my plight. He jumped through the opening into the secret room and picked up the portable safe. I'm going to put this in Mr. Halsey's room, Miss Innes, he said, and I shall send one of the detectives to guard it. I hardly heard him. I wanted to laugh and cry in the same breath, to crawl into bed and have a cup of tea and scold Liddy and do any of the thousand natural things that I had never expected to do again. And the air, the touch of the cool night air on my face. As Alex and I reached the second floor, Mr. Jameson met us. He was grave and quiet, and he nodded comprehendingly when he saw the safe. "'Will you come with me for a moment, Miss Innes?' he asked soberly. And on my assenting, he led the way to the east wing. There were lights moving around below, and some of the maids were standing gaping down. They screamed when they saw me, and drew drew back to let me pass. There was a sort of hush over the scene. Alex, behind me, muttered something I could not hear and brushed past me without ceremony. Then I realised that a man was lying doubled up at the foot of the staircase and that Alex was stooping over him. As I came slowly down, Winters stepped back and Alex straightened himself, looking at me across the body with impenetrable eyes. In his hand, he held a shaggy grey wig and before me, on the man... On, on the floor lay the man whose headstone stood in Casanova churchyard, Paul Armstrong. Winters told the story in a dozen words. In his headlong flight down the circular staircase, with Winters just behind, Paul Armstrong had pitched forward violently, struck his head against the door to the east veranda, and probably broken his neck. He had died as Winters reached him. As the detective finished... I saw Halsey, pale and shaken, in the cardroom doorway, and for the first time that night, I lost my self-control. I put my arms around my boy, and for a moment he had to support me. A second later, over Halsey's shoulder, I saw something that turned my emotion into other channels. For behind him, in the shadowy cardroom, were Gertrude and Alex, the gardener, and... There is no use mincing matters. He was kissing her. I was unable to speak. Twice I opened my mouth. Then I turned Halsey around and pointed. They were quite unconscious of us. Her head was on his shoulder, his face against her hair. And as it happened, it was Mr. Jameson who broke up the tableau. He stepped over to Alex and touched him on the arm. And now, he said quietly... How long are you and I to play our little comedy, Mr. Bailey? End of the chapter. Ooh, that was such a long chapter and exciting. Wow, that bit when she gets stuck inside the room, that was just amazing. So creepy, just in the darkness. Oh, I just felt it very strongly. And, ooh, John Bailey was there the whole time. John Bailey was no one else but Alex in disguise. Oh, this book has everything, honestly. It's got people who are pretending to be dead. It's got like other bodies hidden in, in cemeteries. It's got blackmail. It's got secret identities. Ma- people masquerading as other people. It's got scarred women. It's just, it has everything. 
and I love Rachel so much. For a, like a heroine of this type of story written in 1908, she is fantastic. My only sadness in the last few chapters is that Liddy has had such a small role. I just, I, all I want, really, is Liddy and Rachel just talking together. That's what I want from this book, and I hope they have one last conversation in this last chapter, because I love them both. I'm going to drink some tea. Continue. Chapter 34 The Odds and Ends Of Dr. Walker's sensational escape that night to South America, of the recovery of over a million dollars in cash and securities in the safe from the chimney room, the papers have kept the public well informed. Of my share in discovering the secret chamber, they have been singularly silent. The inner history has never been told. Mr. Jameson got all kinds of credit, and some of it he deserved. But if Jack Bailey, as Alex, had not traced Halsey and insisted on the disinterring of poor Armstrong's casket, if he had not suspected the truth from the start, where would the detective have been? When Halsey learned the truth, he insisted on going the next morning, weak as he was, to Louise. And by night, she was at Sunnyside, under Gertrude's particular care, while her mother had gone to Barbara Fitzhugh's. What Halsey said to Mrs Armstrong, I never knew. But that he was considerate and chivalrous, I feel confident. It was Halsey's way always with women. He and, he and Louise had no conversation together until that night. Gertrude and Alex, I mean Jack, had gone for a walk, although it was nine o'clock, and anybody but a pair of young geese would have known that dew was falling, and that it is next to impossible to get rid of a summer cold. At half after nine, growing weary of my own company, I went downstairs to find the young people. At the door of the living room, I paused. Gertrude and Jack had returned, and were there, sitting together on a divan, with only one lamp lighted. They did not see or hear me, and I beat a hasty retreat to the library. But here again, I was driven back. Louise was sitting in a deep chair, looking the happiest I have ever seen her, with Halsey on the arm of the chair, holding her close. It was no place for an elderly spinster. I retired to my upstairs sitting room and got out Eliza Kleinfelter's lavender slippers. Oh well, the foster motherhood would soon have to be put away in camphor again. The next day, by degrees, I got the whole story. Paul Armstrong had a besetting evil, the love of money. Common enough, but he loved money, not for what it would buy, but for its own sake. An examination of the books showed no irregularities in the past year since John had been cashier. But before that, in the time of Anderson, the old cashier who had died, much strange juggling had been done with the records. The railroad in New Mexico had apparently drained the banker's private fortune, and he determined to retrieve it by one stroke. This was nothing less than the looting of the bank's securities, turning them into money and making his escape but the law has long arms. Paul Armstrong evidently studied the situation carefully. Just as the only good Indian 
is a dead Indian. Oh, pausing there. Why, Mary Roberts Reinhardt's like, I love you in this book. Why did you have to say, that's a horrible, horrible phrase. Oh, oh, the past is awful. Continuing on, sorry. So the only safe defaulter is a dead defaulter. He decided to die to all appearances, and when the hue and cry subsided, he would be able to enjoy his money almost anywhere he wished. The first necessity was an accomplice. The connivance of Dr. Walker was suggested by his love for Louise. The man was unscrupulous, and with the girl as a bait, Paul Armstrong soon had him fast. The plan was apparently the acme of simplicity. A small town in the west, an attack of heart disease, a body from a medical college dissecting room shipped in a trunk to Dr. Walker by a colleague in San Francisco and palmed off for the supposed dead banker. What was simpler? <laughs> Pausing again. Almost anything, almost anything is simpler than that plan. Man, why can't, can you imagine trying to do that now? There's no way that would work. I mean, I'm not saying it would work in 1908, but the implication is there. Stealing a, like, stealing a body from a university? That sounds difficult. Sorry, continuing on. <clears throat> the first necessity... Oh, I've already read that bit. <laughs> I've already lost my pace. What was simpler? The woman, Nina Carrington, was the cog that slipped. What she only suspected, what she really knew, we never learned. She was a chambermaid in the hotel at sea, and it was evidently her intention to blackmail Dr. Walker. His position at that time was uncomfortable. To pay the woman to keep quiet would be a confession. He denied the whole thing, and she went to Halsey. It was this that had taken Halsey to the doctor the night he disappeared. He accused the doctor of deception, and crossing the room, and crossing, sorry, and crossing the lawn had said something cruel to Louise. Then, furious at her apparent connivance, he had started for the station. Dr. Walker and Paul Armstrong, the latter still lame where I had shot him, hurried across to the embankment, certain of only one thing. Halsey must not tell the detective what he suspected until the money had been removed from the chimney room. They stepped into the road in front of the car to stop it, and fate played into their hands. The car struck the train, and they had only to dispose of the unconscious figure in the road. This they did, as I have told. For three days, Halsey lay in the boxcar, tied hand and foot, suffering tortures of thirst, delirious at times, and discovered by a tramp at Johnsville, only in time to save his life. To go back to Paul Armstrong. At the last moment, his plans had been frustrated. Sunnyside, with its hoard in the chimney room, had been rented without his knowledge. Attempts to dislodge me having failed, he was driven to breaking into his own house. The ladder in the chute, the burning of the stable and the entrance through the card room window, all were in the course of a desperate attempt to get into the chimney room. Louise and her mother had, from the first, been the great stumbling blocks. The plan had been to send Louise away until it was too late for her to interfere, but she came back to the hotel at sea, just at the wrong time. There was a terrible scene. The girl was told that something of the kind was necessary, that the bank was about to close, and her stepfather would either avoid arrest and disgrace in this way 
or kill himself. Fanny Armstrong was a weakling, but Louise was more difficult to manage. She had no love for her stepfather, but her devotion to her mother was entire, self-sacrificing. Forced into acquiescence by her mother's appeals, overwhelmed by the situation, the girl consented and fled. From somewhere in Colorado, she sent an anonymous telegram to Jack Bailey at the Traders Bank. Trapped as she was, she did not want to see an innocent man arrested. The telegram, received on Thursday, had sent the cashier to the bank that night in a frenzy. Louise arrived at Sunnyside and found the house rented. Not knowing what to do, she sent for Arnold at the Greenwood Club and told him a little, not all. She told him that there was something wrong and that the bank was about to close, that his father was responsible. Of the conspiracy, she said nothing. To her surprise, Arnold already knew, though Bailey, through Bailey that night, that things were not right. Moreover, he suspected what Louise did not, that the money was hidden at Sunnyside. He had a scrap of paper that indicated a concealed room somewhere. His inherited cupidity was aroused. Eager to get Halsey and Jack Bailey out of the house, he went up to the east entry and in the billiard room gave the cashier what he had refused earlier in the evening, the address of Paul Armstrong in California, and a telegram which had been forwarded to the club for Bailey from Dr Walker. It was in response to one Bailey had sent, and it said that Paul Armstrong was very ill. Bailey was almost desperate. He decided to go west and find Paul Armstrong and to force him to disgorge. But the catastrophe at the bank occurred sooner than he had expected. On the moment of starting west at Andrews Station, where Mr Jameson had located the car, he read that the bank had closed and, going back, surrendered himself. John Bailey had known Paul Armstrong intimately. He did not believe that the money was gone. In fact, it was hardly possible in the interval since the securities had been taken. Where was it? And from some chance remark let fall some months earlier by Arnold Armstrong at a dinner, Bailey felt sure there was a hidden room at Sunnyside. He tried to see the architect of the building, but, like the contractor, if he knew of such a room, he refused any information. It was Halsey's idea that John Bailey come to the house as a gardener and pursue his investigations as he could. His smooth upper lip had been sufficient disguise, with his change of clothes and a haircut by a country barber. So it was Alex, Jack Bailey, who had been our ghost. Not only had he alarmed Louise and himself, he admitted, on the circular staircase, but he had dug the hole in the trunk room wall and later sent Eliza into hysteria. The note Liddy had found in Gertrude's scrap basket was from him, and it was he who had startled me into unconsciousness by the clothes chute, and with Gertrude's help had carried me to Louise's room. Gertrude, I learned, had watched all night beside me in an extremity of anxiety about me. That old Thomas had seen his master and thought he had seen the Sunnyside ghost, there could be no doubt. Of that story of Thomas's about seeing Jack Bailey in the footpath between the club and Sunnyside, the night Liddy and I heard the noise on the circular staircase, that too was right. On the night before Arnold Armstrong was murdered, 
Jack Bailey had made his first attempt to search for the secret room. He secured Arnold's keys from his room at the club and got into the house, armed with a golf stick for sounding the walls. He ran against the hamper at the head of the stairs, caught his cufflink in it and dropped the golf stick with a crash. He was glad enough to get away without an alarm being raised and he took the owl train to town. The oddest thing to me was that Mr Jameson had known for some time that Alex was Jack Bailey. But the face of the pseudo-gardener was very queer indeed, when that night, in the card room, the detective turned to him and said, How long are you and I going to play our little comedy, Mr Bailey? Well, it is all over now. Paul Armstrong rests in Casanova Churchyard, and this time there is no mistake. I went to the funeral because I wanted to be sure he was really buried, and I looked at the step of the shaft where I had sat that night and wondered if it was all real. Sunnyside is for sale. No, I shall not buy it. Little Lucian Armstrong is living with his stepmother, and she is recovering gradually from troubles that had extended. (coughs) 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 Sorry, excuse me, I did drink some tea. Okay, sorry. Ah, so so much coughing. Okay. Little Lucian Armstrong is living with his step-grandmother, and she is recovering gradually from troubles that extended over the entire period of her second marriage. Anne Watson lies not far from the man she killed, and who as surely caused her death. Thomas... The fourth victim of the conspiracy is buried on the hill. With Nina Carrington, five lives were sacrificed in the course of this grim conspiracy. There will be two weddings before long, and Liddy has asked for my helotrope poplin to wear to the church. I knew she would. She has wanted it for three years, and she was quite ugly the time I spilled coffee on it. We are very quiet, just the two of us. Liddy still clings to her ghost theory and points to my wet and muddy boots in the trunk room as proof. I am grey, I admit, but I haven't felt as well in a dozen years. Sometimes, when I am bored, I ring for Liddy and we talk things over. When Warner married Rosie, Liddy sniffed and said what I took for faithfulness in Rosie had been nothing but mawkishness. I have not yet outlived Liddy's contempt because I gave them silver knives and forks as a wedding gift. So we sit and talk and sometimes Liddy threatens to leave and often I discharge her, but we stay together somehow. I am talking of renting a house next year and Liddy says to be sure there is no ghost. To be perfectly frank, I never really lived until that summer. Time has passed since I began this story. My neighbours are packing up for another summer. Liddy is having the awnings put up and the window boxes filled. Liddy or no Liddy, I shall advertise tomorrow for a house in the country and I don't care if it has a circular staircase. That's the end of the story. I feel deeply satisfied by the ending of that book. We We had it all cleared up. Every, every line of mystery 
had a full stop on the end. And we had Liddy and Rachel together. Like they, the book begins with them talking and ends with them talking, just the two of them living together. It's, it's lovely. I really enjoyed that book. That was fantastic. So what a mystery. So we know who killed Arnold Armstrong. We knew that last time. But we also like know where all the money was. Paul Armstrong was indeed alive the whole time, like I thought he was. Scheme. I'm a little bit unclear on one point. I'm not really sure who it is who put the money from the bank into Sunnyside, into that secret room. Was it Paul Armstrong? I assume it must have been Paul Armstrong. But I think I, I missed, if I read it, I was not taking it into my mind as I was reading it. But that was fantastic. I enjoyed that book very much. And now I need to pick the next book. And it's going to be really tricky to follow The Circular Staircase. I just don't think we're going to get a protagonist as fun as Rachel was. She was comedy gold. But I will have a think. And I think I will start reading the next one tomorrow because I have committed to reading a book aloud while I drink tea for every day of the Spanish lockdown. And we don't know how long that's going to be, but it's a fair while. So I need to pick another book for tomorrow and start reading it. And now I did enjoy the mystery element of this one. So maybe we'll do another mystery or maybe a gothic novel this time because I do have a weakness for a good or a bad gothic novel. Anyway, I shall muse on it and we'll see where we are tomorrow. Wish you all a good night, and I will continue reading something, some mysterious thing, tomorrow. Good night. <laughs>